Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. Amen. We're talking about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is the third lesson in our series. And indeed, it is all about Jesus. Can you say amen to that? We've already uh, discussed some things we'll share with you. If you can understand these four simple statements about the message of the Bible, it'll really help us to understand the whole picture. Number one, the father's dream for a family. I don't know about you, but I enjoy family. The father's dream is for a family. Number two, redemption from the catastrophe of sin. That's the second message. Number three, the dream realized or fulfilled come true it came true and thank god for that because we're part of that family and where his dream come true we'll see that in a moment but then fourthly we have the family home the new heavens and the new earth now when you understand those four statements you can understand or you can explain to someone the reason for the universe you don't need astrophysics to do it number one the reason for the universe is to provide a livable environment on earth because everything ministers to the earth and the reason for the earth is to provide for the man for the needs of man and the reason for the man is to give God a family in the beginning that's what they were to do right procreate were they not replenish the earth God wanted a family after his own kind and of course he privileged man Adam and Eve to begin the whole process but it was interrupted by sin and we know that then we went to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, we gave you the theme. And what's the theme of the book of Hebrews? Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater than. Jesus is better than. And it starts all the way back. Anyone ever mentioned? But you go back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You can go back to the prophets and the fathers, the patriarchs of old. Jesus is superior to and greater than any sacrifice that was ever sacrificed. His blood speaks better things than that of Abel's as well. And so... What he's trying to do there in the book of Hebrews is, is to let these Jewish Christians, they were converts, they became Christians, let them know that don't go back under the law. You're under grace. You go back under the law, you're going to lose everything. Jesus is better than it all. So it's all about Jesus. And so even when it comes to the nation of Israel, that was all about Jesus. It was about bringing the Messiah into the world. So as we continue our study, we are living in the third phase of the message. And I want to emphasize that before we look at something else. This is the third phase. We are the children of God. We, you could say, are his dream come true. You are his dream come true. Can you imagine that? He could not give birth to anyone until redemption was complete. And once redemption was complete, then he could give birth to sons and daughters. But up until that point, he could not do that. So we understand that we are the children of the Most High God. We are His family. We are His masterpiece. Look in the book of Galatians in chapter 3. And as we begin reading here in verse 6, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And you hear me say this all the time. I'm going to say it again a few times this morning. Let me ask you this question. Who taught Paul the gospel? We've learned that, haven't we? 
Does anyone know anything more than Jesus? Is anybody smarter or wiser than Jesus? So this man who was destroying Christianity was taken aside by Jesus and taught the gospel. And look at what he taught him. To some this morning, this might be a new revelation to you, but maybe not. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the what? Children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Whoa, wait a minute. He quoted in verse 8, Genesis 12, 3. Did he not? That says, I will make of thee a great and mighty nation, and in thee shall all the peoples of the earth be blessed. Whoa. Jesus preached the gospel Way back then to Abraham, who was not a Jew. He was a Chaldean. He came out of the Ur of the Chaldees. He wasn't Jewish. There was no Jewish nation until Abraham was brought to Canaan's land, who gave the land to Isaac, who gave the land to Jacob. Jacob had how many sons? Twelve sons. One of the tribes, 12 tribes represented by those 12 sons, was named Judah, and thus came the term Jew, Jewish. Abraham may have been the father of it all, but he was not Jewish. Can you see that? So what did God do through Jesus back then? He preached the gospel to him. What he was, not a Jew. And he said, and you will all the nations, not just Israel, be blessed. All the nations. Now let's see that further. Who taught this to Paul? Look at chapter 3 again in the book of Galatians. Go on down a little bit further to verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, which by the way came 430 years after Abraham. Shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster or teacher, it would be like a, somewhat like a tutor, to bring us unto whom? Christ. That we might be justified by faith, not by the law. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor or a, or a teacher, a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have put, been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So when he made this promise to Abraham, what he said was, look, I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for the world. And when he does, whoever believes in him become your seed. So have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning? Is he the Lord of your life? 
You are Abraham's seed and you are the family of God. We're living in the time right now that we are the family of the Most High God. We are His sons and His daughters. We are His children. And guess what? When He gave birth to us, there was joy before the angels of heaven because He who gave birth to us, that is our Father, sang over us, danced over us with singing and rejoicing. You ever think that you can get God to dance? I want well, no high heels or anything like that. But I'll tell you what, he got to dancing when you got saved. He got to dancing when you got born again. Because you see, you're his family. Now, notice in, as we really further explore this, look at Romans chapter uh, 2 and verse 28, 20, we'll start with verse 25, I believe it is. And this is from the New Living Translation of the Bible. The Jewish ceremony, now who taught Paul, see, I keep forgetting to ask you, who taught Paul the gospel? So who taught Paul this? Oh, okay. Just want to make clear. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep the law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No! A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks to praise, seeks praise from God, not from people. Could it be clearer than that? God called Abraham. There was no Jewish people. There was no Israel. Right? But... He needed to do what? Preserve the righteous line and bring the seed of the woman into the world, right? And so what did he do? He raised up a nation called Israel, right? And the seed of Abraham, of course, finally is Jesus. He protected the righteous line. He brought the seed into the world. And once he came, he came to his own and his own received him not. So he moved over to the Gentiles. Aren't you glad that he did? Absolutely. So are we following this so far? See, the Israel had its place and its time. And they were to bring the Messiah into the world. And they did. And preserve the righteous line. But now on this side of the resurrection, why do you think the temple was destroyed? Because a greater than the temple is here. So they would not continue their sacrifices that were meaningless at this time because the ultimate sacrifice was already sacrificed. What's his name? The blood was shed, was it not? And access to the holy place of God has now been made available to all of us if we'll just accept Christ as Savior and Lord. So, with that in mind, let's, go, let's look at some other scriptures. J Jesus basically made the same declaration. Obviously, he taught Paul this. But look at Matthew chapter 12. Jesus said the very same thing. Obviously, he taught it to Paul. While he had talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and he said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will 
of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So what's his family comprised of? Who's it comprised of? Those that do the will of God. Right? So notice he didn't say just because of someone's heritage. It's those that choose to do the will of God. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a male or a female, whether you're a bond or whether you're free, if you accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, you become a son or a daughter of the Most High God and you're part of the royal family. And look at 1 John chapter 3 to show that we're living right now in what phase of the Bible message? The phase where the family dream has come true. We are the family of God right now. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So let's not make it complicated or anything like that. We are living in the time right now that we are the sons and daughters of the Most High of God. We are the Father's dream come true right now, every single one of us in this place. So no matter what you think of yourself before, when you leave this service and you go out there into life, recognize yourself as the Father's dream come true. You are His masterpiece recreated in Christ Jesus. You are a new creature, a new creation that never before existed in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And you are the only group of people that can say, I'm a partaker of the divine nature of Almighty God. No one else could say that in the realm of human history until Jesus was raised the firstborn from among the dead and then gave birth to all of us. Now let's go back in history. And now let's go back, after we've said all that, and go back to the time of redemption. Because what we commemorate, of course, today, I realize that it's Palm Sunday, but uh, some think it's Palm Monday, that he didn't actually come in on a Sunday, that he came in on a Monday. All I say is that no matter what day he came in, he, he went into Jerusalem. Okay? So look at John's Gospel, chapter 12. Because, you see, certain things had to take place in order for birth to take place. And boy, we'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into His glory. Oh, wow. Something spectacular is going to happen. Yeah, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? No, why? But this is the very reason I came. Glorification is involving death? Wait a minute. I thought it was going to be some spectacular ceremony. No, it's called death. Jesus is going to die. He's using a metaphor here that really has a threefold application. Number one, we understand farming, that the seed must die before, then it goes into the soil, it dies, and what does it do? It produces a harvest after its own kind, true? Right. 
Okay, then secondly, he was prophesying his own death. I've got to die and be planted into the ground to reproduce after my own kind. And what is his own kind? He's the second Adam. He's the last Adam. The first Adam failed, and when he dies, everybody dies with him. So the second Adam came to die for us in our place, but he, you see, is the perfect son of God. He has the divine life on the inside of him. He's the seed of life itself. This seed, when planted into the soil, and then suffering for our sin, and raised up from the dead, praise God, will produce after its own kind. We had to be born out of death. You realize that? And he was the firstborn. So we reap what we sow. So if we sow to Adam, we die. If we sow to Christ, we live. So the third thing is, involves us. We must do what? Die to self and follow Jesus. Didn't he say, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? So there has to be a death to self. So those are the three things that are taking place. And so we understand farming, so we won't really go there. So let's look at the death of Jesus first and foremost. He said, I have got to die in order to reproduce after my own kind. As long as I remain alive on planet earth, I abide alone. And if I were to be translocated into heaven, I would abide in heaven alone because there is no person on this earth that could possibly join me as the family of God as long as the first Adam's blood is affecting their lives. He said, so it can't be possible. But if I die and I'm raised out of death and I pay the price, the sacrifice is made, then I will produce after my own kind and give birth to sons and daughters. Remember, in Hebrews it says that for the joy that was set before him, he looked beyond the cross, suffered the shame. The joy was what? Giving birth to many sons and daughters. So what analogy is he using? What example is he using? He is saying that when a woman is about to give birth, before the joy of that baby being born into the world happens, what takes place? Not a party. Ask almost any woman who ever gives birth. There is a time of travail. And in that time of travail, there is usually a lot of pain connected with that. I'll tell you what right now. If you are ever in that birthing room and your wife is about to give birth to a child, don't give her your, your hand that has the ring on it. I made that mistake. And when I finally got my hand back, it looked like I had indentations in both of my other fingers. I was about to, to shout. And it wasn't because the baby was born. Just squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. I, I thought she probably thought she did that intentionally on purpose because she figured, mm, I'm feeling this, you're going to feel it too. But another side of that, if you think about it, is this. Here they are in this awful pain and before birth happens and the joy of the child being born takes away the pain. You're suffering and suffering and suffering and something's taking place in your body that is horrible. But I guess in the back of your mind, you're thinking, but when the baby's born, this will all be over. And that's wonderful. I remember the one doctor. This is when Dante was born. 
And this doctor, Dr. Perry, said, come on, Krista, just push a little harder, a little more, one more time. And he kept saying that until finally, this last time he said it, she said, I would rather die. <laughs> but she didn't say it like that. He's a very calm individual, you know. <laughs> And all of a sudden, his eyes got real big, and he lifted up his head, and he looked at her, stunned. And why am I painting this picture? Jesus was going to suffer beyond anything the human mind can comprehend. You know, they say, we need to entertain our youth, we need to bring them in and let them, let them know that Christianity is a wonderful thing, and it is a wonderful thing. But we've got to basically get them in and entice them with, with the things that they like and all that. Let me tell you something right now. If this doesn't make you fall to your knees, what he suffered for you, then whatever bait that's being used to bring you in is meaningless. Did you hear me? Because you see, you and I should have spent our eternity in a lake of fire. With weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth that would be endless. It would never, ever stop. No matter how hard you cry out for help, it would never happen. But Jesus, yes, he's making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you know what? The parallels should have been so obvious to the Jewish people. Year after year, at the time of the Passover, when they came back to Jerusalem, all these lambs had to be slain. But before they were slain, they had to be scrutinized. They would bring them into the eastern gate, and all these priests would gather together. They would scrutinize this lamb after lamb after lamb. No spot, no blemish. No spot, no blemish. No spot. Can you imagine doing that 250,000 times? No spot, no, no spot, no I can't even do it once. No spot, no blemish. No spot. No blemish. You're good. Up spot. Get him out of here. Up. No spot. No blemish. You're okay. 250,000 times again and again and again and again. And while all this is going on, comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt. He's riding on this donkey as the lamb of God about to be slain. And as the Bible makes it very clear in Isaiah 50 and verse 7, he came into Jerusalem, his face was like a flint. Look at the verse. For the Lord will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. In other words, he comes and he's entering in, and he is now focused. He is now firm. He is now resolved to die. You see, other times he went to places where he would help people. He would pray for people. He would deliver people. He would uh, raise up people from the dead. He would bless people. He would forgive people and all that. But this time, uh-uh. He is focused as focused can possibly be. Because this is his last week. This is like not just the ninth month, but this is like the time of the due date has come and she's about to give birth to a child and now the fullness of the pain is there and she's in labor pains and all that. And Jesus used that analogy when he said, just like she's about to give birth, there's pain, but the joy of the child is born that removes all that, all that pain. But here he is, and he's riding on this colt. He's coming in, and all this begins to take place. This is called death to self. He is no longer thinking about anything but you 
and me and the father's family because you see he is going to die he's got to gird up the loins of his mind he's got to prepare himself physically for what he's going to go through mentally and then also spiritually because spiritually what he's going to go through is unthinkable and incomprehensible when he becomes sin for us He's made the curse for us and the fullness of the wrath of Almighty God is placed upon Him. And why is this happening? So that you and I could become the sons and daughters of God. He is going to take our place. He is going to become our sin. He's going to suffer the consequences of our high treason so that you and I wouldn't have to do it. And if that does not command your allegiance, I'm sorry, no song no contemporary song will either. It's when you and I recognize and realize what he went through. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, he is facing death. His last week on earth, called the week of his passion, he's going to be abused, he's going to be spit on, he's going to have his beard plucked out, he's going to be crowned with thorns, He's going to be whipped by the Roman lictor. I mean, he's going to go through a false trial. He's going to go through a horrendous time in his life before he gives birth to the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Okay, look at John chapter 12, verse 9. There are different kind of people that were there when he was entering into Jerusalem riding on this donkey. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. I call these the curiosity seekers. They want to go there. They want to see this man that was raised from the dead. They want to see the man that raised him from the dead. They're curiosity seekers. They're looking at the, for the spectacular and, uh, that's taking place. And so they're excited about this. You mean this is the God that, God ra that he raised from the dead? Yeah. Yeah, that's the Jesus. He's the one. Look, at, he's the one right there. So they're there. They're, they're, once again, sensationalists, you could say. Sometimes people get caught up in the sensationalism of Christianity and they just get into the flow of it. But you see, it's a whole lot deeper than that. Thank God that we can maybe come that way. But what's going to keep us that way is to have our roots deeply rooted in what Jesus did for us when he died during this week of his passion. That is what's going to do it. Okay, second, you've got the religious leaders. The religious leaders. Think about that term. Religious leaders of the day. The ones that are supposed to know the law. They're supposed to know the plan and the program of God. They're supposed to know all this, right? Look at the next two verses. Verses 10 and 11. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. These people were not interested in Jesus as much as they were interested in getting what they wanted. The curiosity seekers just wanted to see this event. These ruling religious leaders, what were they interested in? Preserving their religion. They couldn't even begin to think that they would stop offering sacrifices, that they would do uh, what Jesus was telling them to do, that they would honor the Messiah who they didn't believe that he even was. They had, you could say, the way of Cain about them. A spirit behind them. They wanted to kill Lazarus. 
Isn't that unthinkable? Think about, these are ruling religious leaders, the high priests and all that were connected with him in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and all that. They want to kill Lazarus and they want to kill Jesus. Why? Because Jesus raised him from the dead before their very eyes. They didn't want change. Beloved, let me tell you something right now. I came out of religious, of religious background. And I'm telling you right now, when religion gets a hold on you, it has a tight grip on your life. And it will try to hold on to you and try to hold on to you, no matter what religion you came from, what, what your religious background might be. And sometimes it's hard for people to let go. They don't want to let go for, for many different reasons. It's tradition. It's this. It's that. But look, let me tell you something right now. It's all about Jesus. It's all about reality. Religion can't save us. It's impossible. Curiosity can't save us. It's impossible for us to be saved that way. And so they were to let go of these things, but they didn't want to let go. They wanted to protect what they believed in. And of course, in a greedy way, just to care for themselves. Okay, then the third one. We have the shallow people. Look at the next verse, verse 12 and 13. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Okay? You look at that just casually and what do you see? Oh, these people, they must really love Jesus. Look at them. Look how vocal they are. Listen to them. Look what they're doing, waving their palm branches and throwing them out at His feet. They're acknowledging Him as their Messiah, their Savior. But what were they really interested in? Instant gratification is what they were looking for. You know what Hosanna means? Save us now. Save us now. Bring us out from the tyranny of the Roman Empire and save us now. We want national prominence once again. We want to be on the map once again. We want to have our own nation. We want to have this and, and so on and so forth. Save us now. That's what they were saying. Save us now. Save us now. But when they found out the way of salvation was by the way of death, crucify him. Crucify him. The same people that cried out, Hosanna. Now crucify him. They want nothing to do with it. Think about it. And then we have the intellectuals. Move on down. In John's Gospel chapter 12, look at verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew tells Philip, uh, and Philip tell Jesus. And right after that is when Jesus said, if a man, well, he actually said, except a kernel of corn fall to the ground and die. What's he saying? Intellectualism is not going to save us either. And these are probably some Greek proselytes that, that were with, among the Jewish people. And they wanted to pick his brain. That was their interest. They wanted to know how he did the things that he did. Possibly, what principles do you know and laws do you know and that you understand that you did all these different things? And Jesus doesn't address any of it. He doesn't address the curiosity seekers indirectly, but indirectly he does. Maybe not directly. And, and those that were shallow in their faith. See, if you saw them from an outward appearance, it looked like that they were just well, basically Pentecostals, holy rollers on fire for Jesus. But yet they weren't. They're, how deep is your love? 
It was so shallow that it was unbelievable. Within a few days, kill the man that we praised. Right? Religious leaders, same thing. And what does he say to them all? He said, look, unless a kernel of corn falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it will bring forth fruit, much fruit. He was talking about his death. He was talking about our death. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What he was saying is this. Unless we are willing to die, we're not really going to live. Unless we're willing to sacrifice our will for God's will, we're not going to have the best that life has to offer. But when you and I make a decision, I'm no longer living for myself, but I'm living for Christ. Like Paul said, crucify the flesh. The flesh must be crucified. As an individual, I surrender my will. I surrender my heart. I surrender my life. To do what? To follow Jesus. Not just to say, I'm making you Lord. Because he said, many say, Lord, Lord, but they don't do the things that I say. So why would you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? I surrender my life to him and say, I want to go where you want me to go. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to say what you want me to say. I want to live the way you want me to live. That's number one. Then you get married and you're married and it's a wonderful marital relationship. You denied yourself to marry the person that you thought you should marry because that person wasn't a Christian. So you submit yourself to the will of God and you die to self and you say, I would rather have what God wants me to have and not what I want to have. And so he brings this other person into your life who is a born again, blood washed, spirit filled Christian and you marry that person and what happens? You both die to self. What is the true secret of marriage? You can go to a million seminars about marriage but I'll tell you what, the one that's going to work is this. Let her die to herself and let him die to himself and let them both live for Christ. And if they both live for Christ and he loves her as Christ loved the church and she responds to that love by submitting herself to him Praise God, because of the death to self, there is a living entity, the life of God on the inside, making that marriage be the best marriage that it could possibly be because the hand of God is upon it. When God made the body, He designed it in such a way as this. To make us understand that the man is the head, the woman is the body. And He designed the head in such a way so that the central nervous system of the brain is located where? In the head. It's been programmed by God to love the body without even thinking, if you will. So when you touch a hot stove, you move your hand away from it. That didn't come from your fingertip. That came from your head. That came from your brain. That came from the central nervous system of the brain because it said, danger, danger, move that hand away. And it did. So in other words, when a man doesn't love his wife as his own body or as his own flesh... He's been designed by God in such a way so as to love her the way he loves his own body. Every impulse that comes from the brain is looking out for the best interests of the wife. And then children come along and the same thing is true. And it just, it just continues to flow down from one relationship to the next. I'm no longer living my life the way I'm going to live my life for myself. I'm living my life in such a way so as to bring up a godly seed before God Almighty. Because you see, we understand something. We may call them our sons and our daughters, but really, they are His. 
And God gave us the awesome task and responsibility of training them up in the way that they should go. Exposing them to what Christianity is all about. So they can know the way of God. So they can know the love of God. The plan of salvation. So they can make Christ the Savior and the Lord of their lives. And they can live for Him and let them recognize their talents, their gifts and abilities. They're not their own, but they came from Almighty God. They need to be sanctified and set apart to serve the living God. You see, it's not this level of Christianity. It just says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church once in a while and then, then, then I go do my own thing. No. No. He died to keep us from an eternity in the lake of fire. He died an unthinkable death, not just on the cross. I'm going to explore this again this, com this coming Friday. When I tell you he died beyond anything we can comprehend, the first Adam, his bloodline carried all the way down through Jesus, but Jesus was not born of the Adamic sin nature, which is why he was called the second or the last Adam. You see, the buck stopped right there. Everyone created an Adam up until the time of Jesus had the Adamic sin nature in the bloodline. Can we understand that? It cannot be eradicated from any human being by his own effort, by his own way. It's impossible for that to happen. So the second person of deity, he became a man. He came to the earth. The blood housed in his body was not of the Adamic blood nature. It did not have the taint of sin in it like the first Adams did. So therefore, he alone, the Son of God, said, I carry in me the seed of life. And as I'm making my way into Jerusalem, I'm going to be challenged at the rock in the garden. I'm going to have the devil beat in my ear. I'm going to have every thought coming against my mind. Because you see, I'm not a coward. Jesus isn't a coward. Joan of Arc wasn't a coward. Those that died by fire weren't cowards. Those that were sawn in sunder weren't cowards. Those that were crucified upside down weren't cowards. They died those kinds of deaths. They were fed the lions and everything else. Were they not? They weren't cowards. They went there gracefully. But our Savior, our Redeemer, is in the garden sweating as if it were bullets of blood. Why? Because he's going to die. What? What? Is he a coward? All these others died without any to-do. I've heard of, you can look at Book of the Martyrs, you can see some, some stories of others that died martyrs' death. They gladly went to the stake. Peter said, don't crucify me like my Lord, put me upside down. Others were sawn, sawn in sunder. Some were tied to trees and had them split apart from their legs. Made no bones about it. But our Savior... Is that the rock in the garden? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Look, there's a guy on your left and a guy on your right that's going to die just like you are. Were they doing that? Well, then what happened? Jesus knew he would become sin. Jesus knew he would be crushed by the Father. With sin in such a way, there would be a period of separation from his father. Jesus knew the penalty of high treason is eternal death. And he knew as a sin substitute, he had to enter the bowels of the earth in Psalm 88 and take upon himself the fullness of the wrath of Almighty God and suffer an unthinkable suffering for you and for me 
incomprehensible, no other being will ever, ever, ever suffer what Jesus suffered. It was not just a physical death that redeemed us. It was the punishment due all of us all fell on him. And when he in that place, which is called the abyss, you can read it. And I'm going to explore it more in Romans chapter 10, verse 7. Who shall descend into the abyss and bring Christ up? He was brought up out of the abyss. And read about what the abyss is. In Revelation, you can see that's where the devil's going to be locked for a thousand years in the abyss. It's not a pleasant place by no stretch of the imagination. So, now some people, when I teach this and others teach it, they say, oh, that's heresy. What do you mean that's heresy? The Bible says his soul was not left in hell, neither did his body see corruption. Does it not say that in the book of Acts? In Acts 13, 33, did it not say that this is my son this day? Have I procreated you? You see, he was 100% humanity as much as he was 100% deity. And so if you say in his humanity, he went where the first Adam should have gone and spent eternity. And he suffered in that place for three days and three nights. And when God saw the suffering of his son, who became now the suffering servant, he said, it is enough. Now my righteous servant, let him come up. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And he brings him up out of that awful place. And when he brings him up, he brings all humanity up with him, praise God. He raised us all up together and made us sit together with him in the high heavenly places. He brought out of death, Adam, the seed of the first Adam, is now destroyed there. And the seed of the second Adam, we are the seed of Abraham. Hallelujah. The body of Christ made up of Jews and Gentiles and, and name them all, whether you're male or female, doesn't matter whether red, yellow, black, or white, you are all become the seed of Abraham and no longer can the Adamic bloodline affect your eternity because you got a new bloodline, a new transfusion, you've got the blood of Christ flowing in your veins. And now you're alive. A new birth. And what was that? That was called travail. God will see the travail of his soul. As a woman was in travail, Jesus was in travail. And it wasn't just the cross. It says Jehovah laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jehovah did. It says Jehovah, it was pleased Jehovah to bruise him, not the Roman lictor. And so young person, if you're out there, it's not a song that's going to keep you. It's not a contemporary music that you like that's going to keep you. It's not giving you a hot dog after church that's going to keep you. Or a donut on Sunday morning that's going to keep you. What's going to keep your head on straight and you walking with God. Listen to me. And I mean in your life individually. I mean in your marriage. I mean with your children and your grandchildren and so on and so on. What's going to do it is you know where you came from. You know who brought you out of death. You know where you would have spent your eternity. And you know you owe your allegiance to the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord. Let me just conclude this because I'll go on forever if I don't conclude this right now. Look at the book of Revelation. You say, but is it worth it? Because if, if I do that, I sacrifice myself. It means I have to say, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, all the time to my wife. 
Or it means that I've got to say, honey, I submit myself to you. What a good job you do around the house here. I just love you so much. And so on and so forth. And the children, we've got to bring them to church. We've got to teach them about Jesus and read them the Bible and show them what the Word says and pray for them, etc., etc. Is it worth it? Is it worth what we're doing here? Well, let's ask, just find out about Jesus if it was worth it. In the book of Revelation chapter 5, what do we see here? Look at verse 9. Now, remember, in chapter 4, John was brought up to the, from the Alpamas. He was brought up to the throne of God, to the high court of heaven. And what was he shown? Some things are going to take place and unfold, right? Over time. Okay? And while he's there, what does he see? He sees everybody worshiping Jehovah. All the beasts, all the elders, and they're all just worshiping Jehovah. They're bowing down before him. He is worthy. He is worthy because he created all things. By him all things were made, etc., etc. Right? Worthy. And so he sees all that worship. Suddenly the scene shifts over. And he sees on the throne, the father on the throne with a book written beside the back, both sides, sealed with seven seals. He sees a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who's worthy to take that book and lose the seals of heaven? They said, no, no, nobody in heaven or earth or beneath the earth. Nobody can take that book and lose the seals of heaven. They looked all over. All over heaven, there is not one person there. On the earth, there is not one person there. Under the earth, not one person there. Such as they're in the sea, not one person there. So he went much. And he went much because nobody's found worthy to do it. And so... One of the elders said to him, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He hath prevailed to take the book and loose the seals thereof. And he beheld, and he saw in the midst of the throne a lamb as he had been slain, having seven eyes, seven horns, was all the seven spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you made us kings and priests before our God and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb. The slain lamb became the worthy lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them, is heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits on a throne and to the lamb forever. And the four beasts, what did they say? Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that lives forever and ever. Is it worth it? Oh, when he was coming into Jerusalem riding on that donkey, it may not look like it was worth it. When he went there before the Sanhedrin and they plucked out his beard, it may not look like it was worth it. And then when they finally went over to Pilate and all, and of course he had to go before Pilate, who, by, by the way, who deemed him innocent, right? All right. See, but he was still the innocent lamb. That means he was without spot, without blemish. And then when he went to the Roman lictor and they ripped his back and when they, when they crowned him with a crown of thorns and then he pierced his side and pierced his hands and he pierced his feet. Then it looked like he was worth it. Then he was hanging on that cross before all the world to see. Did it look like it was worth it? I'll tell you something right now. On this side of it, it may not look like it's worth what you're doing. But I'm telling you, there's a time. You are going to know. You're going to know that you know that you know. Because on the third day, when God raised him up from the dead, he crowned him with glory and honor. And he is seated at the Father's right hand, at the majesty on high, where he ever lives to make intercession for every single one of us. It's because of his sacrifice, you are the son and daughter of the Most High God. Let's praise him. Go ahead, stand up and praise him. Hallelujah.